0: ready oh, wow. Well, how are you doing? Good. How are you doing? How are you doing? <laughs>
1: well, I'm to be
2: doing fine. Hey, I did water rub at this morning. My heart's still racing. Wow. Yeah.
1: My favorite exercise. I'm still hoping for
2: rain, but um, I don't know.
1: Might be Sunday.
2: know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to cool down at least. At least it'll be nice uh, today and tomorrow. Yeah. And then uh, next week, it looks like the weather is going to change and we can hope that it changes for um, the better. You need rain. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was
1: reading that we have La Nina instead of El Nino now, which is a cooling of the ocean uh, temperatures, and um, I think that might exacerbate problems in the southwest for the drought, but in our area, it might increase. uh, We might get some more rain in northern California. It would be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah,
2: Yeah, we definitely have a dams and stuff that need to be refilled
1: and
2: oh. replenished.
1: Well, and there's a lot we need to do infrastructure-wise in that regard. Um, obviously, at the city and county level, and I know, obviously, leaders are, are doing what they can. Um, here in Petaluma, we're trying to conserve water as best we can for the drought. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, it's been,
2: it's been tough. A lot of our trees aren't doing so well in my backyard. <laughs> and, yeah. I know. You know, it's you know I've been really trying to conserve water, and I found that I was kind of backtracking. Yeah. And then I finally, um, the city offers these buckets that you can get from them, and then I have my own buckets. Right. So I have them for you know all the the sinks in the house, mm-hmm. and you know it really makes a difference. And it's really an eye opener seeing how much water comes out before it heats up, so you can yeah. take a shower.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. And so I'm trying. So we're using that for the yard. Um, so it's you know it's easy to go back backtracking. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, I haven't had to turn on my faucets out in the yard at all this summer. Just using the bucket overflow. Wow. Yeah, but I don't have very big yard either. Not like right. it's Not like you, Janice.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit. Big. And plus, we put new trees in. Yeah. This last year, so you know those uh, have to be yeah. watered. But you know it's all coming from basically the sink and the shower. Yeah. yeah. So it's pretty good.
0: Yeah, I like at Rivertown, they have all the different colored buckets, so you can even color coordinate in your house with your buckets.
2: Well, that's what I did. I went to Rivertown I and did I buckets. <laughs> I did, <laughs> too. And one that's bigger for the, you know, the bathroom, and then I have a smaller one, but they're aqua color. Yeah. And, you know, so I got all the colors that I wanted, but the city is, it's gray or white, but it's fine. It works out great. Yeah. But, okay. Yeah, I did the same thing. Plus, the prices there are really good. Yeah on their buckets.
0: They're good, sturdy buckets.
2: Yeah, they are. Yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. So there's, Definitely. there's lots of issues to discuss.
1: We have a lot of stuff happening in Petaluma, but there's a lot of issues uh, that go beyond Petaluma that affect our county. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's important to have good leadership at the county level.
0: Absolutely.
1: Um, so on that note, um, Cindy, would you like to introduce our guests?
0: I certainly would. Uh, today we have with us Commissioner Blake Hooper, who uh, not only sits on a number of committees here in the city of Petaluma, but is running uh, for a seat on the Sonoma County uh, Supervisors. Uh, we're District 2, is that right? Yes. Yes. And so uh, I want to welcome Blake Cooper. Good morning.
3: Good morning. Thank you very much Hi. for having me on your show. Well, excited to be here.
0: Thank you for being here. And uh, so, you know, I... I don't know a lot about you myself and so there's probably a lot of listeners that don't either. So give us a little background of of who you are and how you ended up here.
3: Wonderful. I'm so I'm a pretty much lifelong resident of Petaluma. Grew up here in the in the nineties, built a life started to build a life here, went to college at East Santa Cruz, got a degree in politics, started working in community organizing and campaigns, got background in government budgeting, then started working for local groups here. I worked for Sonoma member Michael Allen. I worked for Sonoma County Conservation Action and worked for Congressman Huffman as a field rep and caseworker. I now work for the California State Senate as a legislative aide. And during my time here, I've also served on the Petaluma Planning Commission, the Pedestrian Advisory, uh, Pedestrian and Bicycle Advisory Committee our transit advisory committee, and I'm the former adult chair for the Youth Commission. Because I, one thing about me that has clustered a lot of my friends and families, that I really love meetings. And I pretty much enjoy anything that involves an agenda that's over-engineered. So I've, I've spent a lot of time just focused on community service, public service, and, and engagement in the area. And I've got a family here. I live with my wife, Ileana Madrigal, who is also, a human rights commissioner for the county of Sonoma. Uh, funny story there is: we ended up meeting at a Young Dems retreat in the, at Lake Tahoe in 2013, which tells you that our marriage is pretty much based, based on a foundation of public service and dedication to the community.
0: Well, that's really cool. Yeah. So, why did you decide to throw your hat in the ring for the supervisor seat?
3: Well, there were, I would be lying to you if I said that this was, this was some long-term plan that I thought out since I was three years old. I know you, you meet some people who run for office and they've been saying they're going to be presidents since they were in kindergarten. No, I had, when I got into public service, my first thought was, how do you work with people and how do you work on policy? Uh, I grew up here during a time when it was, and unfortunately still is, hard to get some of the services you need. I had friends and family who couldn't get the mental health care they needed, couldn't get the housing assistance they needed, couldn't get the access to food stamps they needed. And so I, even as a kid and as I got older, I kind of became that forms person who gets really deep into what the deadlines are, why things aren't working, how to get around you know, a rejection letter or what have you to try and help my friends just survive. And as I got more involved in my career in public service, I, I really tried to focus on what are the, the systems and policies that people rely on the most just to survive here. And it was around the pandemic that, for me at least, it became apparent that over the last ten years is increasingly harder. For people to be able to build a life in Sonoma County, let alone South Sonoma County. I mean, for my generation, for people, certainly people younger than me, and for folks that are slightly older or retiring, the concept of owning a home, building savings, having retirement, those seem like fantasy to most of us now. And that's mm-hmm. and that's not just folks who are working jobs where you might expect the income isn't as good. Maybe it's a first step job, right? This is for people who have careers. This is for people who have been working for a living for a long time and are seeing that their cost of housing is going up, cost of living is going up, and there's very little support for them if they kind of fall out of what they need. Uh, I was a caseworker for Congressman Huffman, and I got to see up close how people are struggling in this district, work with people in this district, and also then help oversee federal recovery work following the Tubbs fire, and worked very closely with the county on those processes. And what I saw was this one very important entity within our community, something that most people don't think about unless they need it. But if you go without a paycheck for too long, or you lose your vehicle to get to work, or some other circumstance should happen where suddenly life is out of your control, suddenly the county becomes very important to you. It was very important for a lot of us. And there's this nexus there where the county can work with cities, where it works with people, and where it's really more of a coordination entity than anything else. Because in government, I have found no one level of government really solves anything so much as all of them working together on different parts of the problem. And so during the pandemic, it was it was so hard to watch as, you know, I had old cases who calling me because by then I was working for the state senate. I had cases who were calling me because they were ha- having a hard time working with the county housing authority. I had people who were calling me because they couldn't get a vaccine because there wasn't a plan for what the vaccine rollout would look like here. I was talking to community members who just wanted to get vaccines organized for their teachers only to find that their supervisor or our supervisor not only didn't want to hear, hear from them but was yelling at them because they had other things they needed to do. And I was watching this and realized we're in this moment where it's not just people who are already struggling. It's a lot of us who are potentially close to that line. And we need a supervisor who not only understands how easy it is to fall into need, but is also willing to do everything they can to work with cities, to work with the community, to work with the state, to work with federal government, to make sure that we're prepared for the next crisis, because whether it's housing or water or even the vaccine rollout, because once the crisis hit, you knew vaccines were going to come at some point. We have been watching disaster come to us and doing very little to prepare for it. And one quick note I would also say, and this was something that was sticking with me since 2017, I got to see how hard recovery is. I got to work with people from start to finish on how to rebuild a home. People who you would have thought would have the money. And just to be clear, these were people who had savings, who had insurance, who had coverage. It took them years to try and rebuild with constant efforts to try and keep their loans, keep their support, fight their insurance companies, get the supplies they need to build. And whilst Petaluma and South County aren't exactly next to the WUI up closer to Santa Rosa, we have our own WUI area. This area is... classified as moderate risk, but CAL Fire is updating their maps, and it only really takes one high wind event with dry conditions, especially if it starts on the west side of town. And so the other thing that's been on my mind since since I started working with constituents trying to rebuild is this, how would we be prepared? Because we can do a lot for prevention, but we have to be prepared for recovery, and we have to help our cities prepare, because that's for so much this is going to matter especially in South Sonoma County. And so a lot of this came together for me for why I wanted to run because I realized we didn't have a supervisor. Yes, we had somebody filling the role. The job of a supervisor is to be proactive in your community and not just ignore people because they live in a city. So,
2: I just want to bring up a point. I had um, connected with, with Supervisor Rabbit on an issue And, you know, it was one that affects, you know, our entire community, but the county really had to be connected with this particular issue so we could all work together. And he basically said the city needs to come to him. So he lives in the city of Petaluma. He knows what the issues are. He was a city council member for only two years, but he still should know what the issues are. But he felt as though we should come to you, so it's kind of refreshing to um, hear somebody say that you're going to be working with the city you know as a supervisor because that's what really happens it's not one person first it's everybody working together in one full circle so i'm looking forward to that kind of representation and i think it's really important um you know our supervisor we talks about all these committees that he's on and a lot of these committees are outside of the county and i think it's important to be connected but sometimes you spread yourself so thin You're working outside the county and forgetting that you're actually supposed to be representing, which we are as the second district. So it's refreshing to hear um, your experience, um, your commitment, and I'm pleased to hear that you're running for supervisor. Mm -hmm.
1: I'd like to get at your um, experience a little bit because, as it mentions in the uh, Argus Courier article, which talks about your... Uh, your announcement uh, to run. Um, This was back on August 21st. Uh, It does reference the fact that you haven't held public office before. Um, So, you know, often what happens is somebody first runs for council. Uh, Obviously, you've served on a lot of important committees and and commissions, including the planning commission. Um, But I'm wondering how you arrived at the decision to go direct to supervisor prior to running for an office like city council.
3: Well, one thing I I would say is right now we have two members of the board who never held elected office prior to running for supervisor. And in one of those districts, the previous supervisor had also never held elected office. And it's, it's an interesting question because certainly as I started putting this run together, thinking about it, talking to people, I, I would get asked that question quite frequently, and I, I think it's important. So I've had a strong belief for a long time, and it's part of how I've guided my career, is that if you're going to focus on public service, if you really want to help people, you should equip yourself to be able to do the most you can. And that means really investing in what your education, your training, your experience is. I've I have been a... Field representative and caseworker for a U.S. congressman. I worked on issues that involve federal state funding. I've worked with the community on larger city and county issues. I work for the state now as the legislative aide where I get to work on a whole set of statewide issues and I get to see how other counties interact with their cities, support their communities, and also work with the state. I, I have a background in land use and planning. I have a background in in government budgeting and disaster response. But more importantly than any any of that, I'm actually close to the problems we're having. Because I, I have no intention of saying that, you know, the current supervisor is a bad person. I don't think that at all. My issue is in whether or not they're doing the job we need. And right now, this is, we're not in the 1980s. We're not even in the 1990s. It's 2022. Young people... Are moving out in droves. People are unable to be to really plan to have a family here. People are unable to retire here. It is expensive for everyone, and we are facing a climate emergency that is on everyone's minds now. It's no longer become that taboo issue that only a few people really focus on. We're seeing it with the drought. We're seeing it with our soil. We're seeing it with the fires. We are now a county that lives through crisis every few years. I mean, you just take COVID out of it. Mm -hmm. And it's not enough to survive. People have to be able to thrive here. I've experienced trying to hold on in this community. Now, I was very lucky. I had parents who worked very hard to make sure I got the education I needed, who fostered an obsession with public service and commitment to duty that goes beyond yourself. But trying to get internships here, trying to work here. I remember having, you know, you there's nothing available really in the county if you're trying to build a career in a lot of ways, or at least there wasn't. So you end up taking buses all over the bay. You end up, you know, bus to train to bus, trying to kind of get what you need to build your career, build your future. You end up commuting in and out of the county, and then you try and make enough to live here. I hear people talk about their mortgage payments and they are a fraction of what most of us pay in rent, but then they talk about their mortgage payments from a few years ago and they've ballooned astronomically. It's not enough to be showing up to the office every day now. We need a supervisor who's actually focused on being proactive with their communities, proactive with the cities, and proactive with issues that they're actually aware of because they've either experienced or very close to. And I know both from the front end of trying to help people get services here and from the policy end where we have a lot of blockages but more more importantly than any of that county and county and city council are very different roles you know the city is focused very much on obviously the budget for the city obviously residents within the city but you're talking roads and housing placement and zoning, and a whole host of other issues that kind of roll through just located within the city. County, you're still talking about roads, you're still talking about housing, you're still talking about zoning, but you're talking about supportive housing support. You're talking about continuum of care for the homeless. You're talking about working with the state and federal government to bring in funds or to make sure that policies are aligning with cities. You're talking about regional climate goals and regional transit. One thing that Janice mentioned was Our current supervisor talks a lot about the boards and commissions that he serves on. You know, for one thing, being a supervisor means that you are going to serve on boards and commissions. What those boards are will vary. but That is going to be part of your job whether you want it or not. But the other thing is it's not enough to just collect boards and commissions like medals or trophies. It's about what you do with them. I have a background in working with state and federal governments to bring money, bring support, bring help locally. I have a background in working with local government, working with community groups, and most importantly, in learning how to actually listen to people, to hear what they need and what what they're trying to fight for, rather than making assumptions. What we have right now is someone who will talk about funds that were already going to be put in place, either by that entity or elected officials at a much higher level, or who talks about the roles they have, but misses golden opportunities to try and help out our county at home. And to me, I think the number one qualification priority for a supervisor is their community. And it's it's not just South County, but the county as a whole. And so in terms of my qualifications, no, I have, not, I have not run for city council before, but I've been working in government and public service my whole career. I've worked with community members throughout this district and throughout this county. I've worked with our state and federal representatives. And I've been serving on committees and commissions for longer than I can remember. And I can tell you the focus of the job as a county supervisor is really how you coordinate and work with all those different levels to help your community, both in your district and countywide. It's not just sitting on those boards or technically showing up at the office every day.
2: I just have a question. Um, We're looking at redistricting, and people, I think, understand redistricting now because of what's happening in other states and why the redistricting is happening. But in Sonoma County, there's um, a concern that one supervisor has too much of the coastline. Mm -hmm. And so can you explain the benefits if they were divided or... But, and, and what does the redistricting look like for Sonoma County? Because it's going on right now. And it doesn't it look like there's going to be a lot of changes. And what are the changes and why?
3: Thank you. And as you can imagine, I've been following this process very closely because it could have impacts for the county, impacts on this race, and, and really will determine what representation looks like locally for us. Specifically on the concern about one supervisor having too much of a coast. I, from what I've seen and what I've heard, it, it seems to be that there's this argument about supervisors with cities versus supervisors without them. And this argument that supervisors without cities, or without a lot of cities, I should say, or more rural or county land, have to do a lot more with with the same staff as supervisors with cities. And part of the argument with this coastal district that I've heard so far is really splitting up that district So that there's more of like an equal share between the county and and city land for some of our supervisors. I I can understand that on a basic level, but I have some serious concerns with it. For one thing, as a supervisor, and I'll I'll tell you this now, as somebody who, should I win, would be representing Petaluma, should I win with current district lines, I should say, would be representing Petaluma, parts of Werner Park, and the city of Petati alongside all of our unincorporated areas you should be just as focused on your cities as you are on unincorporated land. Yes, you are the direct representative of your unincorporated community, so they're going to be calling you because of plumbing and because of your roads and because of, you know, your power hookups and what have you. But for regional goals, whether it's transit or the climate or development or housing, you've really got to be working with your cities, and there's a lot of issues cities face that require their county supervisor to help. So on one level... I, I would argue if supervisors with cities have less to do, that is more a comment on them and less a comment on the workload. Uh, I would also say my, my concerns with a split district really have to do with coastal protection. Right now, we, we do have one supervisor who largely has our coast. But that is incredibly important in some ways because you want someone who's advocating to protect our coastline from development protect our our natural resources environment out there, which this is, you know, out in far rural areas where you really shouldn't see a lot of development. There's no real infrastructure to connect out there. So you really want to protect it. And it's important for our long-term climate goals. Splitting the district, on the other hand, just based on the maps I've seen, makes it far easier to kind of carve out parts of the coast and make planning decisions there that Seem less important in the moment. Let's just say because oh you're only you're only looking at a few miles of the coast. You're not looking at the whole thing. Uh, I I respectfully understand where maybe some of those supervisors might be coming from if they're thinking about workload. I think there's other things you can do to resolve that. But I don't think breaking up a coastal community is the right thing to do. Uh, and why? And just speaking to why this is so important. Your Your supervisor helps determine what your conduit is for housing assistance, your conduit for homelessness, your conduit for food stamps, continuum of care, a lot of regional issues, and also your county county departments, and then regional boards. Now, your supervisor may not sit on those boards necessarily or be the representative to them, but that should be the person you can go to with certain problems. You know, people used to call Congressman Huffman's office all the time. They called their state senators. They called their assembly members. It's the same with their supervisor. And your district lines will represent who will determine who you're calling and how responsive they're going to be. And the other important thing is it determines what your community looks like. You know, right now there's an argument that's kind of spilled over with regards to redistricting. There's just the conversation about what should our lines look like, which communities should go together. But then there's the conversation with regards to, is it supervisors voting on just projects and just needs for their district, or are we really starting to look at the role as countywide, are the decisions countywide, are the cities included in that consideration? For me, the answer to that is yes and yes. Just like on any other board or commission, the decisions you're making have an entire regional impact, but you also have to consider your cities because it's not like they disappear when you make a decision. They get impacted as well. And so I think that's complicated a lot of the discussion, but at the end of the day, redistricting will determine who represents you, whether you're in a city or you're in county land. And it's important because if you have too much consolidation or you have communities that are disconnected, you can run into situations where people never really get the representation they need because they've been essentially gerrymandered or redlined away from the communities that would help them the most. Uh, one last note I would make on this that I think is important. We're having a conversation right now about water, drought, and, and how we move forward going to the next 20 to 40 years. Uh, I know there have been some projections that say we might have above average rainfall, but Regional projections are showing that drought is far more common, and after the next 20 years, it's looking like it should be common for another 20 after that, which means we're really looking to do everything we can now to not only conserve the water we have, but prepare for much rougher conditions down the road. Where our district boundaries fall can also help determine how strong our regulations are when it comes to water, when it comes to the health of soils when it comes to the practices we put in place to make sure that we can still be a healthy community for agriculture, for dairy, and for our natural resources all at the same time. And I, I think there have been some politics around this that have been devised to really hide that point from people. But just like certain elements of the county have been relying on cities for water, we're relying on the county when it comes to food, when it comes to agriculture that supports so much of our businesses. I mean, look at Petaluma alone. Yes, you have people who live in the cities who aren't farmers, who aren't working with dairy, who aren't working in, you know, kind of rehabilitating lands or working to make sure that we have kind of healthy soils on the coast. But a lot of what supports that are businesses in Petaluma. So if there are major impacts to our farming community, to our dairy community, in terms of practices being used, that end up shortchanging what we have long-term there, then you're going to see economic impacts for the people who live in the cities. That's my long-winded answer, and I realize it's probably a little too long. <laughs> my long-winded answer is saying that cities and county are interconnected. Redistricting is about representation. And right now, splitting a coastal community that is one community into two to fracture representation just doesn't seem like a good idea.
0: We're talking with Commissioner Blake Hooper, and Blake is a candidate for the Sonoma County Supervisor District 2, which will be uh, in the 2022 elections next November. So, uh, Blake, I want to ask you, how important do you feel it is for the supervisor to work with the different city councils and the cities that they represent?
3: I think it's critically important. Um, you know, we're we're talking about the housing crisis we're in right now. Realistically, if we're if we're building in a healthy way, you want to see more housing along urban corridors. You want to see it around your transit corridors. Now, a lot of that's not county land, but a lot of cities on their own are struggling to have either the revenue or the planning capacity they need to be able to make sure that they get the kind of housing to fill that fill that goal. And so then you look at the county. They have their own numbers that they're trying to meet for housing growth. Well, there's a serious question around, around whether or not you want more housing in certain elements of county land that do not have municipal hookups, that are closer to our our green belts and outside of our urban growth boundaries, that don't necessarily have the connections of services needed for a community to really thrive in those areas. And so if you're trying to really meet the housing goals we Set for ourselves, which we desperately need to meet. That means having supervisors who work with their cities to try and see what kind of shared compromises can be made, where you can say, okay, how do we try and allocate more of our goals into our cities or have more joint city and county projects on housing? How do we provide the funding support and the financial tools needed to help you get to where you're going so we build in less areas that are more prone to wildfire risk that worsen our drought and in the long run are just unsustainable for people living there. Uh, And outside of housing, the supervisors should be working with their cities on everything from transit to services that are needed from federal and state government, major backfill services, uh, FEMA, FEMA resources, especially in disasters, preparation, mitigation. Uh, one big area that I think we've been largely dropping the ball on has to do with support for cities to be able to invest in their, their residents going through and retrofitting their homes for, def- for long-term protection from fires and also creating vegetation management in our cities. Because if you look at Petaluma, just go to the west side of town, what you see is essentially a tree line to Victorian roof to tree line to Victorian roof. And if you've got a low precipitation, uh, dry, high wind event, you get a sparked fire. If it jumps a line or moves too fast like they have before, that could be devastating for us, let alone embers flying. And ember travel can go for miles. And so it becomes critically important for cities, which is where you see a lot of the development, it's critically important for cities to help their residents, many of whom can't afford it on their own, be able to improve their roofs, fix their vents, make sure that they've cleared the vegetation around their homes, maybe trim their trees, if not having to remove some of them. That's all money, and we can mandate those regulations, but if you don't help people do that, because even if you own a home, that doesn't mean you can necessarily afford to replace your roof, um, you're just going to see people putting it off or doing it the wrong way, and for our long-term survival, that's that's really not acceptable anymore. And that's an area, again, where county supervisors can help their cities. But two other areas I would bring up, one has to do with uh, mental health. Counties are, the county health department is the contract department for most cities here. County supervisor, for example, can help with getting vaccinations when you're going through a pandemic. Um, Kind of segueing a little bit here, even though I started with mental health, but We, during the pandemic, had teachers asking for help trying to get vaccination clinics set up. And they were told they were essentially given the door when other districts had their supervisors helping their communities and their teachers get the vaccinations they needed when it was a priority so that parents could actually go back to work, which is really important if you're focused on trying to revitalize an economy during a crisis. And so... These are all areas where the city and the county really should and do work together. They don't necessarily work together here. I have endorsements from the, the mayor of Petaluma, the mayor of Werner Park, uh, Councilmember Posike, Vice, Ma- Vice Mayor Natalie Rogers, Vice Mayor Jackie Elwards. I, I have endorsements from Councilmember Laura Sparks and from just from Petaluma School Board alone. From our school board members, Joanna Pond, Maddie Cloud, Sheldon Jen, and Caitlin Quinn. And the reason I have these endorsements, and there are more, but the reason I have these endorsements specifically is because they've all had to try and work with their supervisor, and they haven't been able to. Uh, another area where it's important is transit. We've been promised a second smart station for, what, a, I want to say a decade now. My, my math might be a little bit off. I did graduate college, I think, right when that was being promised. Um, and we still haven't seen it. And I, in speaking with government officials and speaking with people who are close to that project, they were very clear. Their supervisor, in this case, our supervisor, wasn't there as somebody trying to help work with SMART to make that project better. He was a, an adversarial force looking for his own gain, and made that very clear. So when when we're talking about trying to improve our transit, improve our housing, when we're talking about regional climate goals because any one city can't really do it on their own because the budget alone for that is going to be expensive, when we're talking about mental health care, and especially when we're talking about how police respond to mental health care, that all relates to the county. And on that front, I would like to note a very recent example of this. When Measure O passed, one of the promises for cities was that the county was going to help provide funds to start safe teams in their cities. Now ideally the county wants to revitalize its own safe teams that are rather limited right now but the promise was that it would help cities start their own to build up that service and then eventually build up the service in the county area as well. And safe teams just for anyone listening really focused in Petaluma that would be the CAHOOTS model and that has to do with making sure that you're sending you know essentially social workers and skilled practitioners to respond to a mental health call or or emergency rather than a police officer who should be responding more to, well, essentially a a law enforcement issue. And just recently that came up to the Board of Supervisors. And again, instead of following the promise, instead of following the budget that was promised for cities, the pushback was, well, we'll provide a little bit of what they've requested because we don't help startup costs. Well, the cities were going to invest an equal share of money into the startup cost. They were just asking for the half, of the half of the total budget that they were promised in Measure O, and that Measure O had the funds to provide. It wasn't an unreasonable ask. And again, the county's response was, well, this is very important, but we don't help with startup costs. But well, we didn't vote for Measure O so that the county could then turn around and say, well, we don't really want to help you. It's important to have cities with their own safe teams because the county right now can't provide a safe model service that covers not just counties but the cities. It doesn't even really cover the county well yet. So this is another example where when it comes to revenue, when it comes to care, when it comes to our long-term goals, the county and city have to work together and the supervisor has to be on board with the needs of their cities. And I'd like to point out, City of Petaluma, City of Runner Park, and Cotati, they were all asking for this funding, but they were effectively, well, they got If I recall correctly, they got what amounted to a little over $50,000. They were promised $500,000 when they were going for Measure O. So there, there's the difference there.
1: Didn't the supervisors and, not too uh, long ago vote for pay increases for themselves?
3: Oh, sorry. Could you say that again?
1: Didn't the supervisors vote to give themselves an increase in pay not too long ago?
3: I honestly, at the top of my head, I don't know, but if they did, I would find that appalling given how high supervisor pay is. I believe it's attached to state judge rates, and it's astronomically high compared to what most civil servants make at county, at state, at federal. There is very little justification for a pay increase for county supervisors. They should probably look to help their staffers more
2: after a few, you know, X amount of years and they get this lifetime pension. That as well. That's, you know, a very short time. But, um, like, I want to go into Measure P and Iolero and what is really happening with Measure P and the sheriff's objection to Iolero and also the what is the role between the supervisor and the sheriff?
3: Absolutely. So... Um, With regards to what's happening with Measure P and Iolero, the the board has thankfully decided to appeal the PERB decision, which was put out there, and it seems like a last-ditch effort, to try and overturn the impacts of Measure P. The argument for it at the time was that essentially the relevant unions, or in this case, I want to say the the sheriff's union, were not... Can
2: you go back and explain what Iolero is first? Right. So the public knows, because we know, but they may not.
3: Fair. So Iolero, uh, in a nutshell, is meant to be the oversight body for the sheriff. They're there to investigate claims of misconduct, to look at body cam footage, to, to really be there to make sure that there isn't excessive use of force, to ensure that when people file complaints or have concerns about actions that are taken, that there is a professional, independent, Oversight body that will be there to verify whether or not the claims are true, and that isn't naturally biased to any of the officers involved because they're also part of that same department. And and just to be clear, because I think Iolero often gets characterized as some some grab to attack law enforcement. This this is about accountability. Any government entity that receives tax, taxpayer funding has accountability. It has oversight. It's expected to have some kind of mechanism that the public can access to be able to make sure that they're acting appropriately. And it's especially important for a county law enforcement entity that has the kind of added level of scrutiny that comes with being able to hold a weapon. And so Iolero's role is to provide that kind of clear oversight that isn't, isn't biased and is focused on making sure that the truth is discovered when there are complaints, when there are concerns, when you do have excessive force, when you do have a death. Um, it, Iolero was created by the Board of Supervisors following the death of Andy Lopez. They created the board as an oversight body. The The only issues that it's funding kept being attacked year after year, and for example, our current supervisor was a persistent thorn for IOLARA when it came to making sure that they could keep their funding intact. And so Measure P went out as a mechanism to ensure that IOLARA's funding was protected at a certain percentage so that we could carry forward regardless of who was on the board of supervisors. Now, what happened recently and what seemed to be a last-ditch effort after in this district and in the county... Measure P was overwhelmingly voted in favor of. There is a per decision, which just in brief, there is a essentially it's government union oversight board that is able to. Uh, you can essentially think about it like going before a court. You're able to try and make a case that a decision has been made that didn't inform that union or didn't didn't inform the constituents involved in that decision. And so this this board came forward with, with a, a ruling that called into question whether or not measure P w- was valid because the sheriff's union hadn't been properly consulted in the process. And I think this is the first time I've ever seen David Rabbit be positive about a union oversight decision, but he kind of came out with, and I told you so. The board, though, thankfully, or the board of supervisors, thankfully voted to appeal, I and mean, then it seems like they're going to be moving forward with that process. Now, why Iolero matters is because in this county, we have unfortunately had a history of violence and mistreatment when it comes to people of color. This matters a lot to me, not just as a human, but because when I have kids, my kids will not look like me. And I remember growing up here, what, what used to happen in plain as day, because I was just a white kid walking around in the wrong, essentially in the wrong part of the county, but you know, they didn't care because they assumed that I wasn't going to do anything about it. Well, this board's designed to try and put a stop to that kind of behavior and to try and make sure that we don't have abuse of power, and make sure we don't have as many deaths and unreported violence as we've had so far. And why this matters with regards to the Board of Supervisors and the sheriff. Well, first of all, even though Measure P passed, and assuming the decision on by curve is essentially rescinded. It is incredibly helpful to have a board that fully supports IOLERO that can make sure that it gets all the, the support it needs when it comes to technical expertise, when it comes to its leadership. For example, the board gets to decide who the director of IOLERO is. Now, this is not a comment on the current director, but we're talking about an oversight board, and really that decision should go out for a national bid. So, that we can get the best expertise to come in to run an organization like this. Um, when it comes to other decisions, we've got cities right now talking about their own accountability boards, and they're having a hard time because city funding is limited. And so, you're, if you have an oversight committee that's then more legal staff, how do you look at, how do you appropriately look at the records that would be provided should you essentially have a smaller version of Iolero at a city level? And so there's an opportunity here where the county could help cities by contracting out Iolero to expand it a little bit, but to make sure that cities can use legal staff provided by the county to be able to help them with their review of records, with the expertise that would be required to support a community oversight board established in any given city here, because our cities are relatively small. Um, How this all relates to the sheriff. Board of Supervisors does approve the sheriff's budget. And for a long time, our board has been nervous when it comes to to trying to enforce rules through the sheriff's budget. Just to give you an example, though, uh, I was sitting in a meeting not too long ago where a board member was talking about infrastructure upgrades for the jail. And when you think infrastructure, you think, okay, you're you're talking about plumbing or you're talking about the bathroom or you're talking about what have you. No, they were talking about state-of-the-art tasers. And so budgets matter with regards to the sheriff, with regards to our jails, with regards to Ayolero, because they can effectively help dictate the kind of policies that we're supporting as a county, even if the sheriff's office is technically a separately elected role. And I think that over that accountability is very important because law enforcement, yes, is important. Government is important. But accountability is equally important for people to hold trust in those bodies. And this shouldn't be political. If we're doing if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, then accountability is not a major problem at all. Most governments live with it. There's no reason our law enforcement should be any different.
2: Like I'd like to um, talk about I, I, from what I've read. It seems like our supervisor is a little bit late to the game with the drought. But I'd also like to talk about you know public safety. And um, COVID and vaccine mandates because San Francisco mandated that their officers had to be vaccinated and or you would lose your job. And then also in Sonoma County, we seem to have problems with COVID spreading in the courts and it's people from the sheriff's department bringing that in and also in the jails. You know, everybody, we had an officer that died of COVID, it appeared he was not vaccinated And is it the officers that are bringing COVID into the courts and to the jails? And what kind of recourse does the public have to make sure that mandates, like San Francisco did, to protect the public? Because they're public safety, and they have skirted around public safety. And I feel like they've been a vector for spreading COVID.
3: Well... And I will say, I, I see there's a 10-minute mark, so I, I will try and keep my answers on this one a little more brief. Um, when it comes to COVID mandate, we absolutely, if we're going to get out of the crisis we're in. And I know it seems like cases are going down, but the variants being the way they are, I'm most concerned about people who are still vulnerable and the unvaccinated in this community who are still very much at risk. We need as much of the public as possible to be getting vaccinated. We need to be explicit about this, and all of our elected officials need to be explicit about this, as this falls in line with everything that has been said by our state and county and federal health officers. Now, when it comes to our staff, our staff should absolutely be mandated, our, our should be absolutely mandated to be vaccinated. Our elected officials should be mandated since we have to be the ones that people are listening to and have to trust when we're saying you need to get vaccinated. And when it comes to our law enforcement, I don't think there's a question about it. If you're a social worker working in a community, you, you have to be vaccinated for a whole host of conditions, let alone COVID. You should absolutely be vaccinated for the current pandemic. If you are a law enforcement officer, whether you're in a city or a county, you are hopefully working with the community. You're hopefully interacting with people every day, seeing how they're doing. I'm hoping it's not just tense situations. And if that's the case, you should absolutely be vaccinated. And when it comes to mandates, if the rates of vaccination are not high enough, I, I respect what San Francisco did. They essentially told their employees, told some of their officers, if you're not going to get vaccinated, you can find another job. We need to be clear about what we support, and I know there's people out there, and I, I've got some family members who fall into this camp, and so I'm sure they're, they're yelling yelling at the radio right now. <laughs> there are some people out there who, because I've said any of this, not only will never vote for me, but will probably try and find where I live and send me lots of mail because of this, and that's fine. But I'm... As a candidate running for supervisor, as someone who hopes to be your supervisor, I'm never going to lie to you about where I stand on an issue. I'm not going to equivocate. We need to mandate vaccinations where possible. We need to make sure that elected officials, if we're going to be pushing it, that we ourselves are are vaccinated. We need to make sure that our sheriffs are vaccinated. We need to make sure that our county employees are vaccinated, unless there is a real medical condition. Which I only say that because uh, some folks assume that if you support the vaccine, you are unreasonable. Now, if there is some condition that will very much affect your health, fine, but that's going to be few and far between compared to the majority
1: of people. Well, and that's the big reason why everybody who can medically get vaccinated should be vaccinated, because there are some people that have compromised systems that, that have trouble uh, with vaccines. But on that note, I mean, what is your thought on the whole uh, religious exemption notion—the idea that some—I mean, you know, how far do you take that? I I have a religious aversion to stop signs, so uh, I'm not going to going to wait for stop signs. I mean,
3: so I'm so I'll say this. This was interesting to me because I'm I'm Catholic, and as far as I know, I don't really know of any Catholic reason for avoiding a vaccine, but I do have some family members who've tried to use it to avoid a vaccine. Mm -hmm. And I very much understand how important faith can be to a person's life. Mm -hmm. I very much understand how hard it can be when a policy seems to be counter to a long-held belief, if that is indeed the case. However, a health crisis affects us all. The long-term impacts of getting vaccinated affect other people. It, this isn't like, it, it's not set, we're not saying we're mandating whether or not you can go to church or whether or not you can avoid doing something that has no impact on anyone else because you don't believe in it. That's fine. But these are people's public, these are people's health. These are people's kids. These are people's family members, especially if it's transmission by way of a third party. And, you know, I have close family members who are immunocompromised. They have not seen other members of my family for a long time because of this very issue. And I, while I understand that something like a vaccination can be hard if that is an issue for your faith, I'm sorry, but if you expect to go into public spaces, if you expect to be near a crowd of people who you don't know who's been vaccinated and who hasn't, we have to be vaccinated. And I, if that makes me unreasonable, so be it. If this turns a lot of people off, so be it. But it's just the truth. We're in a pandemic. It's a public health crisis. It's a little bit like saying, you know, we were, a wildfire is coming and whether or not we're going to make sure someone's evacuated. No, you make sure they're evacuated. These are people's lives. Mm -hmm. So Um,
2: I I just want to quickly say I just got a uh, message and the person is saying an excellent program today. So I want to thank you, Blake, (laughs) and Cindy
0: and Jason. Well, we have about five minutes left, so I want to give you the opportunity, Blake, to um, spend a couple of minutes um, with the constituents who are listening and um, reinforce your uh, reasons for asking for their vote and um, also your website and other information where they can get a hold of you.
3: Thank you very much, Cindy. So just to reinforce why I'm here, why I'm running, it has become increasingly difficult to be able to build a life in South Sonoma County or Sonoma County as a whole. Whether you're in the city of Petaluma or Katati or Park, you're in Pengrove or Bloomfield, or further north. It's become more expensive, it's become harder to plan for the future. And if you're trying to have kids or retire, it's become uncertain whether or not you can even live in the area because of how much costs have increased and because of how common disasters are starting to become. What we need right now is leadership at the county level that's thinking about the next 10 years. We're going to have more wildfires. We are going to have more drought. We are going to have drier conditions. And things that we took for granted are going to get much harder. And if we want to really grow as a community, to thrive here, to be able to withstand whatever comes next. We need leadership that is really sincerely thinking about how best to put what we need in place so that when something bad does happen, people are able to respond, so that if the worst thing should happen, people have the help they need, and so that when you're thinking about having a family or you're taking your kids to school, you're not wondering I wonder which community they're going to move away to. I've had a background in public service for most of my career, and I know that I am relatively young, and I know that I have not been a council member before, which is typically expected. But I am a public servant with an academic and professional background focused on this role. I've worked with the county. I've worked with other counties, and my role is a, As a legislative aide for the state, I've worked with this county as a field rep and caseworker for our member of Congress. I've worked in the community, whether it was through community organizing or the organizations I've spent a great deal of time with here. I've helped people here who are struggling, and I've worked with people here who had no idea they were about to be struggling. And the thing that matters to me is making sure that we have a future that isn't what we're seeing in so many other communities around us. We have people buying second homes, families start to disappear, school classroom sizes shrink, and when people move here with a family, it's for a few years before they have to go someplace else. We don't want to become some community that is essentially for retire- for the retirement of people who have the money to have more than one home. And we don't want to be a community that's filled with people who happen to survive here. We need to focus on the future, and that is why I'm running to be your supervisor. If you'd like more information, my website is blakehooper.com. I'll be launching my issues page this week and also my endorsements. Thank you for listening today, and thank you very much for having me on the show.
0: Well, thank you for being here. Uh, it was our pleasure, and we hope to check in with you again uh, in the spring to see how you're doing and um, hear more of what you have to say.
3: Absolutely love that. Thank you, Cindy. Okay. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Janice. This was wonderful. Great.
2: Thank you, Blake. Good information.
0: Thank you. We've been talking with Commissioner Blake Hooper, who is a candidate for Sonoma County Supervisor, District 2. And you're listening to KPCA 103.3 FM. The show is Inside Petaluma. I'm Cindy Thomas, here with my co-hosts, Jason Davies and Janice Cater-Thompson. And we're here every Friday from 11 to noon. So do come back and give us a listen. Um, All of our past shows are located uh, in a file uh, on our website, InsidePetaluma.com, and you can also check in on our Facebook page, KPCA Inside Petaluma. And so we have it, uh, oh, I forgot to start the music. How about that? There we go. Now we're, now we're closing up. We've got about 15 seconds, and, um... Jason, Janice, thank you as always for being here with me and